When Marty Cooper dreamed up the idea for an invention called a cell phone in 1973, it wasn't a popular idea. You're telling me people thought that the cell phone was a dumb idea? Absolutely. No, no question about it. Today, at 92, he considers today's cell phone only the crudest precursor of what's to come. Oh, David, we are only at the very, very beginning. We are going to revolutionize mankind in many ways. I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Season 1, Episode 8, How the Cell Phone Was Invented. Now, unfortunately, I don't have some great chronology milestone to justify why we're doing this topic now. This isn't like the 50th anniversary of the cell phone. It's only the 48th. It's not the 100th birthday of the guy who invented it. He's only 92. But I do have one little news hook. That inventor guy, Marty Cooper, has just published his memoir. It's called Cutting the Cord, which is a title he hates. You don't like the title? Well, it turns out it was not original. (laughs) Several other people used it. I didn't know that at the time. I like to think I'm a a good amateur marketer, but I'm not a good book marketer. The other reason for dedicating an episode of Unsung Science, which is a title I love, by the way, is that Marty is an exceptionally cool, smart, funny, humble, thoughtful dude. This world can always use more Marty Cooper. So let's begin at the beginning, Marty's childhood in Chicago. Marty, when you were a little kid, did any of the signs of your current personality exhibit themselves? I spent a lot of time alone. My folks actually had a grocery store uh, at at that time of their lives, and and of course they both had to work uh, at this thing. So I spent that time alone and became a very avid reader and uh, uh, even at the age of uh, eight or nine years old, I thought automobiles were wonderful. I just loved it. I knew every model year and every feature of every car. And I ended up going to what they call the technical school. They, I think they would call it a trade school now. Mm-hmm. And yet I uh, uh, got a very good education in, in liberal arts 
uh, and uh, at the same time took a shop every year, wood shop, uh, uh, metal shop, forge, foundry. And I, I can't tell you how valuable those kinds of things were. I still get a thrill out of fixing things. When I uh, fix an appliance or I program the lights in the house, uh, I get instant gratification. When he was about 18, he found out that the U.S. Navy was offering a fantastic deal. They'd pay for college tuition, books, and incidental expenses if Marty would agree to spend three summers with the Navy and then three years after graduation. He loved the experience. He writes in his book, My time in the military taught me about leadership, responsibility, and getting along with people. Those traits came in handy a few years later when he was an executive at Motorola, the leading maker of two-way radios for police, taxi companies, and the military. Its bread and butter was car phones. So these, these car telephones were not cellular car telephones. That's correct. They were literally two-way radios, asynchronous radios, in other words. You couldn't talk at the same time. Like you'd have to say, Hi, honey, I'll be home late, over. And then honey would say, I'll start dinner without you, over. They were also not what you'd call mobile phones, apart from, you know, being part of your car. The car phone's electronics fit into what looked like three big suitcases. They had to be wired into your trunk. Weighed 30 pounds. And there was a huge cable about this big around that went from the trunk to the front. And then there was a what we call a control head with the dial and the stuff. And then there was a speaker off in the corner and there was a microphone coming off. So just the installation of this thing alone was a, a major job. But there was a bigger problem with car phones, calling capacity. They had one transmitter in a city uh, and a very limited amount of radio channels. Uh, and so you could only serve so many people. If you tried to make a phone call during the middle of the day, you could never get an operator. The chances were one in 20 that you could make a phone call. That's how bad that uh, uh, service was with the car telephones. It really was not a mass product. Now, the cellular network is quite different. Today, we've got cellular antenna clusters known as cell sites on towers and rooftops all over the U.S., over 415,000 of them. Your call gets handed off from one cell site to another as you move around, a system that drastically increases the number of calls that can be going on simultaneously. An engineer at Bell Labs had dreamed up this idea way back in 1947, whereupon it had been promptly forgotten. Uh, And they put this idea in the drawer, and somebody... 22 years later, pulled it out of the drawer and said, hey, maybe we should uh, execute this. this." Cut to 1969. Bell Labs is now the research division of AT&T. AT&T wants to expand its car phone business and get around that awful capacity problem. So it dusts off the cellular proposal and approaches the government about getting a monopoly on this new technology. They went to the FCC and said, we want to continue our monopoly in telephones. So uh, they concluded that they were going to build this new system uh, that they called cellular, and I was at Motorola at the time, and we objected to both of those. Bell system. 
was going to come along and they were going to take over our business as well as this whole new thing and do it wrong, do it with car telephones. People had been wired to their desks and their kitchens for over 100 years, uh, and now they're going to wire us to our cars where we spend 5% of our time. Motorola was really worried. If the FCC gave AT&T an exclusive on the cellular airwaves, that would be the end of Motorola's primary business. The company desperately wanted the FCC to open up cellular to competition, not to give AT&T a monopoly. I should point out that at the time, AT&T was the world's biggest corporation. Marty Cooper wanted to show the FCC the kind of potential that cellular might have beyond car phones if there were competition in the marketplace. As he saw it, these phones could one day be battery-powered and fit in your pocket. You could carry it around with you. Radical. So you were proposing back in 1973 that cell phones should be completely untethered, not part of a car, but in your pocket. Why wasn't everyone saying, that's the greatest idea I've ever heard. We'll sell hundreds of billions. It turns out that people are not very good at predicting the future in general. You're telling me people thought that the cell phone was a dumb idea. Absolutely. No no question about it. Well, I guess it takes a, a dreamer slash executive to bring it about. Well, when you think about it, uh, at the time, the Internet hadn't been invented yet. There were no digital cameras. The large-scale integrated circuit hadn't been created. The, the lithium-ion battery had not been created. So the idea that you could put all these things together in a box, you really had to... Uh, have a little bit of imagination. There's a great quote by Joel Engel, the engineer who ran the Bell Labs car phone program, basically Marty Cooper's arch rival. Engel said in 2007, none of us, the FCC, Motorola, AT&T, anybody at that time in the 70s, did not anticipate these things. We thought the business was going to be purely business usage, real estate agents, home repair, people who were in their vehicles a lot. We didn't anticipate teenage kids using cellular phones. We didn't anticipate personal residential use. We also didn't anticipate they'd be handheld pocket-sized units. We completely missed the individual usage. Given that mindset, how could Motorola possibly convince the FCC that a pocket phone could be a thing? if the FCC would just open up the airwaves to competition. So I uh, thought about how can we do a dazzling demonstration? The only way to do it is to have a working something. Marty decided that the most direct way to spark the FCC's imagination was to build an actual working cell phone, thereby leaving nothing to the FCC's imagination. There was only one problem. The FCC hearing about AT&T's petition was only three months away. Marty began tearing around Motorola from one department to another to build this thing. And the first guy that I went to was not the engineer. It was the industrial designer, Rudy Curlop. And uh, I told Rudy, uh, we're going to make a cellular phone. And his reaction was, what's a cellular phone? So I... And I described that to him, and he stopped working 
on anything else. He took his whole team of people and assigned them to conceive of what a uh, handheld personal phone uh, might look like. You actually figured out what it would look like before you had what would go into it? Absolutely. Isn't that backwards? Well, that's what this was. We were trying to get people excited about this thing. You've probably seen pictures of the winning design. It's this rectangular beige block. It looks like a Soviet Army field telephone or something. Or, as Marty says, like a shoe. So, But the phone that we ended up picking was the simplest one. It looked like a shoe, but it was one piece. We knew if we made something with, with uh, complications, it would break. The thing is, the original design was tiny. I got to handle the original model that the designers gave Marty. It's like five inches tall. Like they'd taken the one you've seen in pictures and blasted it with a shrink ray. Oh, wait a minute, this isn't a miniature? This is what they actually had in mind? That's exactly right. <laughs> it's it's with... a tenth the size of the final one. Yeah, well, that's the reason for the increase in size is exactly here. He showed me a huge glob of circuit boards and wiring. So they had to fit all this stuff into... Of this phone. This is everything in the phone except the battery. The battery so the designers stuff. proposed this, and by the time you put all that stuff in, it wound up... It grew to this size. <laughs> now that Marty had the shell, Moto engineers had to design the guts. And they assigned their top engineer, who was a fellow named Don Linder. And uh, Don says, I don't think that could be done, in, and certainly not in three months. And I persuaded him to try. I, uh, I used uh, my management style, which was different than others. I gave him a big hug. <laughs> we gave him uh, carte blanche, as many people as he wanted. He ended up with a crew of 20 people working on this one device. Uh, and uh, I was at Gopher. He needed a piece of uh, technology, a new filter, a new integrated circuit, and I was running around the corporation. I knew where everything was, uh, and uh, these guys did it. In three months, they actually demonstrated a working unit. It was just wonderful. And what kind of battery life did the phone get? You could talk for 25 minutes before (laughs) before the phone ran down. Marty Cooper also made history by making the first public cell phone call. It was April 3, 1973. It was a PR stunt. One of the network morning shows was supposed to film this big moment on the streets of New York, but wound up canceling at the last minute. These morning TV people, you know, jeez. So our PR people were... uh, uh, in deep trouble, and they just scrounged around, and uh, they told me that they had this replacement. So we met this guy on uh, 6th Avenue, New York, in front of the uh, Hilton, that I thought, you know, I'm going to call my counterpart in the Bell system. And I looked up the number of uh, Joel Engel, who ran the Bell system car telephone program. This is your arch rival. Yeah, he was. <laughs> uh, he's still not very fond of me, by the way. And, uh, and uh, I said, uh, hi, Joel, it's Marty Cooper. He says, hi, Marty. Very polite. And I said, uh, Joel, I'm calling you uh, on a cell phone, but a real cell phone, a personal, handheld, portable cell phone. Silence on the other end of the line. 
uh, Joel does not remember that conversation to this day. I, I guess I don't blame him. Do you? <laughs> well, I mean, you were rubbing your heel in his face in a way. Yeah. Well, I, uh, he deserved it. <laughs> a few weeks later, Marty gave a similar demo to the FCC commissioners. They rode in a Motorola van, making cell phone calls as they drove around Washington, and their calls never dropped. That's because Motorola had installed three cell towers around the city and carefully mapped out a route that would always remain within their range. So, did it work? Did Marty Cooper's crazy gambit of creating one single working cell phone convince the U.S. government not to give AT&T a monopoly? As if he didn't know. After the break, I'll give you the details. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com at amica insurance we know it's more than just a house it's your home the place that's filled with memories the early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out for the place you've put down roots Trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. And while we're on an ad break, my new book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, is about where to live, how to insure, where to invest, how to talk to your kids, and how to ride out wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, and so on. As the New York Times put it, it's always a good idea to prepare for a disaster you see coming. Pogue has got you covered. The book is How to Prepare for Climate Change, and I think you'll really like it. Before the break, I was telling you how Marty Cooper ran around Motorola, getting buy-in from the various departments to produce a working cell phone in three months. The idea was to convince the FCC to open the cellular airwaves to competition, to prove that competition leads to innovation. And above all, not 
to give AT&T an exclusive on this new tech. Okay, and now finally the big punchline. Did Motorola's stunt work? Did the working cell phone prototype convince the FCC? Here's Marty Cooper again. When the FCC finally made their decision, they actually allowed half of the telephones to be built by the Bell system and this other half to be done by independent. So you did all this for the benefit of Motorola, your employer. Of course. But as a side benefit, you opened up the entire world of cell phones to the marketplace. You ensure that it wouldn't be an AT&T Bell Labs monopoly. Well, that's right. But the cell phone era didn't get underway immediately. It took over 10 years to get the technology right and get the FCC to decide who was going to provide the service. So the first actual service didn't happen uh, until uh, October of 1983, 10 years later. At one point during that decade of waiting, Motorola's Dynatac phone was ready to go, but the FCC was still dithering over how to regulate the new industry. Motorola founder Bob Galvin went straight to the top. He showed the working phone to the vice president of the United States, George H.W. Bush. And uh, Bush uh, called his wife, and he, and, uh, he said to Bob, you know, Ron's got to look at this. And the next thing you know, they were in the office with uh, Ronald Reagan, and Reagan called Nancy, and he says to uh, George, George, why don't we have this? And George says, well, the FCC is kind of dragging it. He says, would you call them and tell them to get this thing on the road? And within a couple of months, they made a decision. But it took that kind of a thing to, uh, to make it actually uh, happen. And presto, in 1983, you could buy an actual, portable, battery-powered, wireless, pocketable cell phone. Well, coat pocketable. They cost uh, $4,000 in 1983 dollars, which would be like having a $10,000 cell phone today. So uh, there were not a lot of sales, but they were sold. And with time, uh, as the system developed, Within 10 years, you couldn't buy a car telephone anymore. All the phones were now handheld. There are more phones, uh, more cell phones in the world today than there are people. There are, there are two-thirds of the people on Earth have cell phones. That's an amazing number. Did you get fantastically wealthy from inventing the cell phone? No. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, when I joined Motorola, in 1954, and I uh, assigned to Motorola all the intellectual property that I might come up with, all the inventions, ideas, uh, to Motorola for a dollar. And David, that was the best deal I ever did in my life. Best deal? It was. Motorola treated me wonderfully, uh, and uh, they allowed me to have a productive uh, career, and I have been thankful to to all of the managers and people Uh, at Motorola, who propagated that environment. I should mention that I was talking to Marty at his home in Del Mar, California, an absolutely gorgeous house directly on the beach. Bill Gates has a home a few doors down. Marty's something of a fitness nut. Even at 92, he does weights three times a week and often takes walks along this beach, 
where we chatted about his book and his movie. So I understand that your book has been optioned for the movies? Yeah, it has by a guy named Dana Brunetti, who did uh, the House of Cards, and, and he did the uh, social network. Oh, wow. Well, who's going to play you in the movie? I was hoping that you would do it, David. <laughs> you're, 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 you're the only star that I know. I could be persuaded. <laughs> You wouldn't do it as a privilege to play me? <laughs> I thought that the least you could do. Have your people talk to my people. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, the point is, despite signing away all his intellectual property to Motorola for a dollar, Marty is not exactly hurting. So, if I can ask, so the beauty and the beachfront house, is this from your subsequent businesses, the income? Yeah, well, I was uh, lucky enough to get hooked up with a... Uh, a wonderful woman, and we've uh, created a partnership, and we've been starting businesses, and uh, uh, we've had some uh, uh, failures over the way, yeah, but we've had enough successes, so uh, the world has treated us very well. That would be Marty's second wife, Arlene Harris, a technology innovator in her own right. Marty left Motorola in 1983 and married Arlene in 1991. Together, they founded a string of companies in the cellular industry. And so I met Marty at a conference in Carmel in 1979. At which I was speaking. He was speaking. He was a bigwig coming in from Motorola, Chicago. You know, the, the, the guy that everybody was sort of had big eyes about. And he came in and told us, uh, his prognostications about what cellular was going to be. It was an inspirational talk. <laughs> were you starstruck? I mean, were you impressed by his intellect and his talk? I, can, I can't I don't speak so. for Arlene, but I was starstruck <laughs> with Arlene. We, uh, yeah. we uh, started out with a, a uh, minor conversation in the bar, and that conversation has been going on for 42 years. Still, <laughs> yeah. still going on. Isn't the general advice for relationships not to work with your spouse? We don't agree about everything. But, uh, you know, that's the spice of life is the disagreement as long as you're, it's friendly. <laughs> but it seems like if there's a technological dispute, can't you just go, I'll have you know I'm the father of the cell phone. Wouldn't you automatically win? No. <laughs> One of their companies created the Jitterbug phone, a phone designed for seniors that's now owned by Best Buy. My dad had a Jitterbug phone for a while. The whole idea was to simplify it. Big buttons and a screen that had larger fonts. That's how we went to market. It was just a phone was a phone and nothing else. With the Jitterbug phone... You would open the flip, and if you had a dial tone, you had a signal, and if you didn't, yeah. you didn't. That was an example of simplicity. Now, Marty Cooper seems like an affable, easygoing guy. You might not immediately think of him as a rabble-rouser, a guy who throws bombs at the establishment. But he's got one opinion that infuriates the executives and lobbyists for quite a few billion-dollar corporations. Uh, and the myth is that Radio frequencies are like beachfront property. Once you use it up, it's gone. Total myth. 
Wait, 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 wait. You're talking about spectrum. We hear about the FCC auctioning off blocks of frequencies called spectrum auctions, right? And for billions of dollars. Right, because nature only gave us a fixed number of frequencies and everybody wants them. Radio and television and cellular and the military, they're all fighting over these limited finite number of spectrum bands. We all know that. Politicians know that. (laughs) But we engineers know that when Marconi started out, he did the first commercial radio. That was the beginning. And he used up 100% of the radio spectrum doing that. And then the engineers came along and they figured out how you could have two people on Earth talking at the same time and keep increasing that number. And then different technologies for squeezing more bits of information, more voice into less and less spectrum. And we've been doing that to the extent of we have doubled the capacity of this radio spectrum that we've been talking about. We have doubled it every 30 months for 120 years. What? But it actually is 10 trillion times increase in capacity between what Marconi did and what we're doing today. Part of it is that we've been going higher and higher and higher in frequency. That's a very small part of it. We just have learned how to be much more efficient. Marty, I have been a technology reporter for 30 years, and the fact that spectrum is precious and limited, is it's been a given. Like, we know this. Well, you can see why I am uh, ridiculed by most of society. <laughs> But the people that understand do uh, uh, subscribe to what I see. They call the law of spectrum capacity Cooper's law. Is it something like Moore's law? It's exactly the same as Moore's law. And the basis of it is that we're so inefficient now that we have lots and lots of room to grow. With the law of of spectrum capacity, we're only at the beginning. We, We can go a trillion times more in capacity by just using radio uh, and uh, computing technology. I guess we haven't run out of it yet. That's true. You know you are so smart. Now I know why you make all the big bucks, David. We've never run out. We keep increasing the number of people that are benefiting from this by orders of magnitude, uh, and yet we still don't run out of spectrum. Marty is confident that the legend of limited radio frequencies is a charade, that new technologies will always let us keep ahead of demand. And I'll give you another example. The towers that you, we've been talking about are all outside. Guess where most of our phone calls are? Inside. <laughs> and and we, so we put out huge amounts of energy to penetrate our houses and buildings. Uh, in the future, we're going to be putting the cell sites in the buildings, little tiny cell sites. But at some point, all these things are going to be connected to each other uh, and much, much more efficient and much lower cost. And it turns out that there will be an infinite amount of radio spectrum. Marty does a lot of that, you know, thinking about the future. One of the most surprising things you wrote in your book to me was that we are only at the dawn of the cell phone? Oh, David, we have, are only at the very, very beginning. There are, we are going to revolutionize mankind in many ways. 
we now know that we can put a device uh, in your ear, on your earlobe, under your skin uh, that has a computer in it. Uh, and you could call, I could talk to that computer and I'll call my computer, Sam, and I'll say, hey, Sam, get uh, David on the phone for me. Uh, and when we talk about healthcare, you will have sensors on your body, maybe under your skin. And when fluid starts accumulating in your lungs, if that ever happens, and that is the, the uh, precursor of a heart attack. If you know you're going to have a heart attack, you can stop it. Just think about that. Having what we call a cell phone now can eliminate congestive heart failure, which is like the third uh, highest cause of death in people. And that technology exists today. It's not in the future. Ultimately, it will be able to sense a few cancer cells. Mm. And as soon as those cancer cells appear to be getting out of control, you go to the hospital, go to a doctor, someday you'll be able to do it yourself, zap the cells, cancer is gone. I mean, you're talking about implanting technology in our bodies. I would normally say, come on, dude, that's absurd. The only problem is you've been right before. <laughs> well, we do that all the time. We do have uh, pacemakers, we do that regularly. Now that's gotten to be a, a very routine kind of something. But that's just healthcare. Once everybody has a cell phone and internet access, there will be many, many more aspects of life that can improve. I believe that the whole process of education is going to be revolutionized, that having access to the internet, the role of a teacher is going to change. Teachers are not going to be just communicating information. The kids can do that better themselves. The teacher will be advising people, teaching them how to use the tools. I know I sound like an optimist, but poverty is going to be a thing of the past. There is no reason for anybody in today's society to be poor. The United Nations determined that in Africa alone, over a period of 20 years, 1.2 billion people moved out of severe poverty, largely because of the cell phone. How, how, what's the mechanism? The mechanism was these people, poor people, have no way to deal with money. They have no way to save money. They have no way to transfer money from one place to another. And people came along and invented, there was a system called M-Pesa, where you didn't need a bank to save money or to move money from one place to another. This is stimulated entrepreneurism. Just that fact just moved over a billion people out of poverty. There were people who would loan money to a woman in a village in India so she could buy a cell phone, which he would rent out to the local farmers or the local fishermen, and they could call the neighboring villages and find out where there was a market and increase their efficiency. Those are the real indicators of what the future of the cell phone is and the way the cell phone is, is helping society. It is making us more efficient, more productive. Here's what I find strange, Marty. Now, I know this is a stereotype, but as a 92-year-old guy, I might expect you to relish the stories from the past more than the, the stories of the future. Well, my story of the past is that I have observed that things in the past 
have continued to improve. But if you examine every metric that exists today, we are better off today than we have been in the past. People are, are richer today, they are healthier today, uh, there is more freedom today, there is more tolerance today than there has ever been before. And we've still got a lot of problems, but there's no reason to think that we aren't gonna keep improving. Unsung Science with David Pogue is presented by Simon & Schuster and CBS News and produced by PRX Productions. The executive producers for Simon & Schuster are Richard Rohrer and Chris Lynch. The PRX production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Morgan Flannery, Pedro Rafael Rosado, and the project manager is Ian Fox. The amazing Jesse Nelson composed the Unsung Science theme music, and fact-checker Christina Ribello positioned herself nobly between my scripts and certain humiliation. For more Unsung Science episodes, visit unsungscience.com. And for more of my stuff, visit davidpogue.com or follow me on Twitter, at Pogue, P-O-G-U-E. We'd love it if you'd like and subscribe to Unsung Science wherever you get your podcasts. And spread the word, would you? Thanks for listening. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, the double life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, the double life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder... 
why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.